1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
3: The expected norms of a monarch were not ones that she could easily inhabit because she was female. If she married, uh, then she was somebody's wife and being somebody's wife meant being subservient to them.
4: That was Helen Castor discussing Elizabeth I.
5: to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week, we'll reach the 500th episode of this podcast – And to celebrate the fact, we're going to be releasing a new programme every weekday, featuring some of our favourite historians who've appeared over the 11 years since we began. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historian, author and broadcaster, Helen Castor, who's been featured many times in our magazine, podcast and events. She was interviewed in her London home by our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne, And the focus of their discussion was Helen's recent biography of Elizabeth I.
0: So today's podcast guest is Helen Caster. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um, So Helen has presented various historical TV programmes, radio programmes, including She Wolves and Making History. She's also an author and an academic historian. So your latest book, Helen, is about Elizabeth I and it's for the Penguin Monarchs series, um, which is a series of really beautiful little books about um, Britain's monarchs. I guess my first question would be Britain and before that England has had its fair share of crazy bad brilliant monarchs.
3: What sets Elizabeth apart? <sighs> what a good big complicated question. <laughs> well, actually looking back in the period that I work on, which is essentially between the conquest and the end of the 17th century, there are there are a whole number of things. One, for example, is the fact that she reigned for 45 years. Not that many monarchs got to that kind of um, level of continuity, um, length of time in being in charge of the country. But, of course, the massive one is that she was female. She was only the second crowned Queen of England ever. The first had been her half-sister, Mary Tudor, who'd reigned for only five years. So the whole project of female rule was a very, very new one. Mary had made a very interesting and intelligent start at attempting to confront the challenges that were part of that that, that new project. But Mary only had five years and it would have been interesting to see where Mary went had she had longer. Both of Mary's parents, Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, lived into their 50s. Mary only got to 42. She could easily have expected to have a decade, two decades longer. But it was Elizabeth who took up that challenge, took up that mantle. And it's really a tribute to her extraordinary intelligence and her remarkable personality and temperament, shaped as it was by the very dramatic life that she'd lived, that she towers so much among our most, as <laughs> 1066 and all that would we'll put it, memorable monarchs. I think a lot of us have this image of Elizabeth in our head, the,
0: the white face, the orange hair, the formidable character, essentially the, the Judy Dench Elizabeth I. How accurate is that portrayal?
3: I think there's an awful lot about it that is accurate so long as we remember that it's only part of the story. In fact, it's a representation of the end of the story. The whole idea of the Virgin Queen, that iconic image of Elizabeth that Judy Dench and so many other people have portrayed, Glenda Jackson, Kate Blanchett, so many others, um, that really is Elizabeth as she came to be in the course of a life that was constantly under threat, constantly under challenge, where actually all the the expected norms of a monarch were not ones that she could easily inhabit because she was female. If she married, uh, then she was somebody's wife and being somebody's wife meant being subservient to them, um, the, the church, the culture believed. If she tried to give England an heir by marrying and becoming pregnant, she risked her own life in doing so. No king did that. So in the end, she reached for an alternative sort of bespoke Uh, kind of sovereignty, an individualised image of a Virgin Queen, a secularised Virgin Queen to replace the Queen of Heaven, that the Virgin Mary had of course been such an important uh, image in Catholic England that had been swept away uh, by the Protestant Reformation. And Elizabeth, in a sense, deliberately stepped into that a version of that iconic role. So I think we have to remember that perhaps if we're talking about the 1590s, that is the image of Elizabeth we should be thinking about, but that it was a very deliberately constructed one in response to the threats from which she was never free. You argue in the book that a lot
0: of Elizabeth's reign and life was shaped by insecurity. I wonder whether you could just um, highlight how that impacted on her reign, but also on her
3: own kind of psychology and personality. I think we do need to start with her psychology, which is obviously a difficult question because we don't have the kind of sources that would allow us simply to read her psychology. We don't have private letters in which she pours out her heart. We don't have her secret diary, age 30 in three courses, much though I wish we did. Um, But so what we mostly have when we're talking about her psychology is silence, And silence is a difficult thing to make arguments from or difficult to interpret, but I don't think that means we should just say, oh, well, we don't know anything about it and move on. I think we can read the events of her life and read the fact that her silence, her opacity were themselves in evidence when she lived. It's not just a historical silence. Her contemporaries didn't know what to make of her either. They didn't know what she was thinking. They didn't know how to put together the fact that she said one thing one day and another thing another day. So if we go back right to her very beginnings, before she was three, her father killed her mother or gave the orders which killed her mother, which in a sense amounts to the same thing. And those orders also turned Elizabeth from a princess of England, the princess of England, the heir to the throne, into a bastard, a royal bastard, but a bastard. So before she was three, all the security she'd known in her life was completely taken away. You then have to add in the fact that before she was 10, she gained and lost three more stepmothers, one of them in exactly the same way as her mother, and in fact, a first cousin of her mother's. And then as she was growing up, with her father still there, and her father never disowned her, even though for the rest of his life she was legally illegitimate, she was growing up one of three royal children. Her brother Edward was, of course, the adored and cosseted heir to the throne, the only legitimate child among the three. And Mary, though she too, like Elizabeth, was illegitimate, deemed illegitimate by the law... Mary had powerful relatives on the continent who were always going to keep an eye out for her welfare. Elizabeth, among those three, was uniquely at risk as the child of a mother who had been judicially killed um, and as the one who had no powerful relatives looking out for her. Elizabeth learned from a very, very young age that the only person who was going to protect her was herself. And where do
0: you think you can see in her her reign uh, this
3: in evidence? It seemed to me, looking at Elizabeth's life, her political life, from its earliest manifestations, which were really when she was in her teens and she was overtaken by enormously complex and dangerous events during the reign of her brother and then um, her sister. If you look at her reaction then and then on, once she wore the crown herself, it seems to me that the characteristic response that Elizabeth gives to any difficulty, any challenge, any threat, is to take up the most defensible position she can, given her assessment of the risks that are already in evidence, and then to attempt not to move. Elizabeth would always rather deal with the known risks of the situation in front of her than risk precipitating new risks by doing something dramatic that might have very unpredictable effects. So we can see this um, in her response, for instance, very early on to the arrest of her former stepfather, Thomas Seymour, for treason. And the suggestion was made that Seymour had been intending to marry her. She was at risk a very young woman, of being implicated in his plans and therefore implicated in his treason. Her servants were arrested. She was put in the custody of a hostile uh, gentleman who was charged with getting a confession from her. And what she did was take up a defensible position, say, yes, she had known of the suggestion that Seymour might want to marry her, but insist that It had never been spoken of, except in terms of only if the Royal Council agrees. And she would not budge. She would not move. And she saved herself and she saved her servants. They survived. She did a similar thing when confronted with charges of treason under Mary. She essentially said, if you think I'm guilty of treason, prove it, um, in slightly less confrontational words. And as the Spanish ambassador had to admit, even through gritted teeth, there is not enough evidence to convict Elizabeth. And then you see the same kind of thing happening once she's queen. Um, In 1559, her first parliament, her religious settlement, is an attempt to find a broad church to which as many as possible of her subjects can be loyal and obedient. And then it's Elizabeth resisting the pressure for further reform that comes from her bishops, most of whom are um, more reformist, more keen on moving in the direction of a clearer kind of Protestantism than she is. So that seems to me to be the theme of her life. And it's a response to the fact that she can never eliminate risk entirely. One of the interesting things about the Reformation and and the the sort of bedding in of the Reformation in England is that of course you do get a new kind of treason coming in which is religious related treason which hadn't been there before and that is a huge part of the difficulty that Elizabeth's facing. Um, How to deal with the fact that some of her subjects are Catholic in a world where from 1570 the Pope has said Elizabeth is excommunicated, she's a heretic, she's a usurper, and all loyal Catholics in England should be working to depose her. That left um, Catholic English men and women with a very, very, very difficult choice between their loyalty to their God and their loyalty to their Queen. And it was one that Elizabeth and her ministers fought over because where her ministers wanted her to to, to to take more extreme action against her Catholic subjects, she was resisting because she wanted to give them every chance to be loyal if they could. I mean, again, it's a question of whether you think the threat needs to be stamped out now, or whether you think you create more of a threat by stamping down on a religious minority. It's a very modern difficulty, actually. I mean, or, or it has become very relevant again. How do you get to the heart of what people really thought of
0: Elizabeth? How do you kind of get to to grips with how she was viewed and how
3: people dealt with her? Of course, that is um, at the heart of dealing with a period so many centuries away from where we are now. Uh, Funnily enough, my response to your question is almost that, well, the the person whose thoughts are the hardest to get at are (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth's. She really is the most opaque of almost anyone um, I was dealing with in writing this book um, when one's talking about her ministers. Uh, they were actually quite free sometimes in express, at least in private, in expressing their frustration with her. Um, and it was frustration that it was, was, of course, heightened by the issue of her sex in their eyes. She was a woman. Why was she resisting their counsel? In other words, why was she not doing what they told her to, um, which they expressed a great deal more freely than... Uh, Henry VIII's counsellors, for example, did, but always um, dealing with the 16th century or centuries before. One is having to work with pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. One never has every piece of evidence that one would like to have. So one is always trying to fit pieces together and see how they might relate to one another to make a coherent picture that seems to make sense to me. That's all I can try and do. And actually, the thing about writing about the later 16th century for me as a medievalist is it seems there are so many sources. I can't, I couldn't get used to quite how many letters um, I did have to work with, uh, or the fact that I was writing with the collected works of Elizabeth I sitting beside me, her letters, poems, prayers and speeches, which for any monarch I've written about before just simply didn't exist in that form or in that volume. So... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated issue.
0: That leads me quite um, nicely onto my next question, which is um, there have been tomes and tomes and tomes written about Elizabeth I. And um, how, you've had 100 pages, essentially, to condense her entire reign and life into. How on earth do you go about
3: doing that? Well, it was a huge challenge and it took me a very long time for what is a very short book. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is I felt... As though I'd had some practice beforehand, because my last um, bigger book was about Joan of Arc. And it's a similar problem when you start reading about Joan of Arc because the number of previous books written about Joan of Arc would fill this room. I mean, we'd have to we'd be being squashed out the door. Um and so I rapidly realized with Joan that I simply couldn't read everything that everybody had ever written about her before me. What I did with Joan, though, was go back to the original sources and relatively quickly realise that what I could hope to do was read everything that survived from Joan's lifetime and the immediate years afterwards. Joan lived a very short time. She blazed across the historical sky like a like a comet. Um, and it is a manageable corpus of contemporary evidence that you can you can read so that's what I focused on for Joan of course coming to Elizabeth with a much shorter book to write rapidly realized that that isn't doable for Elizabeth either because there is so much material surviving from her reign so what I ended up doing or trying to do was remember the fact that really this as I understood the the brief for this series was supposed to be an essay that is um to take an angle or a thought about Elizabeth and try and follow it through her life. I couldn't possibly cover everything that happened in her reign, and this needed to be a personal biography. It needed to be focused on the woman, and that's why I was very keen to look at her psychology, enormously difficult though it is to read. Um, so I found myself starting with this idea of her insecurity and starting with this. Formative event in her life. I mean, I don't think I'm giving anything away to people who haven't read the book by saying that I start with the moment of Anne Boleyn's execution, and then I tried to follow my nose through the events of her life and try to hold that thread, like like the you know thread in a maze, um, the thread of what m- m- I could see or seemed to me plausible as guiding principles that were going through Elizabeth's life from these early experiences. And actually, what I found in writing this very short book is that I didn't write a longer book and cut it down. I was rather scared of doing that because sometimes that can produce a very sort of compressed read. Instead, what I I just started at the beginning and started writing. And I found that as I went on, each chapter took shape. And when I got to the end of the last chapter, I was pretty much on the word limit. I don't know how it happened. It now feels... Impossible to me, but somehow – maybe Elizabeth was guiding me um, (laughs) – somehow the the thread worked and I I got through to the end.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting –
0: something that has been almost obsessively debated is whether or not elizabeth was in fact a virgin to you is that an, a relevant debate is it do we even need to know this is it is it important
3: to me it is important yes um it was such an important part of her self-presentation politically iconographically personally in every other way and it was an an explicit topic of discussion throughout her reign Uh, One of the things that can't help but take you back, even even if you know already that you're going to find it, is when you read the detail in the surviving sources of the way men around her and further afield were talking about her physically. There's an extraordinary memo written by William Cecil, one of her most loyal, most devoted, closest counsellors, when she was 45 discussing the fact that as far as he can ascertain it from her doctors and from the women who wait on her that she is still physically capable of childbearing now of course that's what he wanted to believe at 45 the question of her marriage i mean at, at when elizabeth was 45 the question of her marriage and the possibility that she might one day give birth to an heir which is what cecil wanted for the future was still just about within the realms of possibility but there he is uh the queen's most senior counsellor, basically talking about whether she's yet menopausal um, and and her physical condition. Meanwhile, on the continent, uh, Catholic commentators were going into extraordinarily explicit detail about all the depraved things that that they asserted Elizabeth was up to, that she'd had children by Dudley and most of the rest of her privy council, that she was a whore. Um, She was the daughter of a whore, of course, because Anne Boleyn was uh, the great whore in the eyes of Catholic Europe. So her physicality, her body and what she was doing with it or not, were not just a matter of her private life. So it seemed to me very important to address. And it's also seemed to me very important to address in terms of Elizabeth's psychology, and that's the only way I could go about reading it. I mean, of course, there are there are practical things to do with her life as a queen. The fact that she was never really alone, that she she was always surrounded by the women of her bedchamber, and we know that she was a lifelong insomniac, and that she wanted women, uh, her closest gentlewomen, sleeping with her a lot of the time. Um, of course, that doesn't rule out other things happening at other times of day. But again, I, I come back to this idea of risk. For someone so risk-averse as Elizabeth, I can certainly believe that she was a flirt. We know she was a flirt. We know she liked male company. We know she liked the games of courtly love. She she loved having um, that kind of court, that kind of suit paid to her, and she played that game with extraordinary poise and charisma and sophistication. We know she adored Robert Dudley. Um, Their intimacy, genuine emotional intimacy, I think, lasted for decades. But the idea that a woman so self-conscious, so so risk-averse, who had seen women close to her die, not only as a result of lustful relationships gone wrong in her mother's case, but also in childbirth. The idea that she would risk any of that and her own political security for sex out of wedlock just seems to me to be a non-starter.
0: What have been some of the things that have surprised you most about Elizabeth when you were
3: researching the book? Given how opaque she is, given how mercurial she is, given how Those around her constantly say how frustrating she was because she was always changing her mind, saying one thing today, another thing tomorrow. And given the great enigma that she has always posed for not just historians, but as I say, the people around her, one of the things I think that surprised me was how often she seems to me to be hiding in plain sight, that she will actually, from time to time, and actually in some cases repeatedly, Say what she means. It's just that the people around her and historians now either haven't believed her, don't know whether to believe her, or simply haven't listened. So, for example, um, at her first parliament, very early in 1559, within a very few months of coming to the throne, the question of her marriage is the hot topic on everyone's lips. She's a young woman, a queen of 25, and of course, a queen will marry, both to have an heir and also because women are not fully capable of ruling by themselves. They are the second sex. A man is the head of woman, as St Paul had said. So everyone assumes she's going to marry. And what Elizabeth says at that first parliament in a wonderful speech, she says that God will provide an heir for England, that she will choose her husband if she does ever decide to marry, her parliament will not be choosing her husband for her. But that for herself, in other words, if she were left to her own devices, she says, this shall be for me enough, that a marble stone shall, I'm garbling it slightly, (laughs) but a marble stone shall one day declare that um, a queen, having lived and reigned such a time, lived and died a virgin. And there are repeated accounts from those first few years of her reign of the queen saying... She doesn't want to marry. She doesn't intend to marry. And people just don't believe her. One German diplomat says um, it's just not conceivable that a queen won't marry. So actually, for all that she is a great enigma, what surprised me looking in detail at the evidence is how often she just says what I think she means, or at least even if I can't convince everybody of that, at least what she turns out to do. Um, and there is a consistency to what she turns out to do. A lot of your work um, over the years
0: has, has revolved around royal figures, royal women a lot of the time. Why do you think people are still so fascinated by the monarchs of the past?
3: I think we're fascinated by people. Um, and, of course, in this country as it happens, given that our revolution didn't really take back in the 17th century, we happen to have this extraordinary continuity of a royal soap opera going back centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, And we all do like a soap opera and our royal family is one of the best. I think the Tudors are a particularly dramatic series out of of this soap opera. I think the Tudors fascinate us partly because uh, Henry VIII and his six wives. I mean, if, if that weren't true, you couldn't really make it up without people telling you, you you were your imagination was running wild. Plus, I've always thought that the presence of Holbein at the English court in, in that period has a huge amount to do with how obsessed we are, because for the first time, we can actually see the faces of the royal family and the people around them as living, breathing human beings. But I also would add I suppose that for me uh, I've always been fascinated by power, how power works, how we're ruled, why we consent to be ruled in particular ways at particular times what what comes up as problematic or contentious or why there are arguments or sometimes battles about how we're ruled and those are still fascinating questions today but the way we're ruled now is much more institutional individuals make a difference but they make a difference within a great machinery of state and one of the things I've always loved about the 16th century and the Middle Ages which which is the period I've worked I've written on before Elizabeth is that power was so intensely personal that you get to see the workings of power sort of stripped back um, to their most minimal forms and then the havoc or the enormous success that one, uh, gifted or not, individual can make within within a constitution that that works in that personal way. As
0: you mentioned, you've done a lot of medieval history as well as Tudor history. I'm not saying which is better, <laughs> but I'm going to say what are the different challenges that you're kind of up against, or is it
3: is it essentially the same challenges? Uh, clearly, there are differences in the 16th century. I mean. We've already mentioned the fact that suddenly the sources, um, well, I suppose not so, I mean, it's been growing over the Middle Ages. And I also shouldn't make it sound as though medieval England has no sources at all. In the late Middle Ages, the the records of government are overwhelming in their quantity. But what we always have much less of in the Middle Ages is the kind of behind the scenes letters um Per, the personal stuff that lets lets you see behind the formal apparatus of government. So in the sixteenth century, you you do there's an exponential growth in that kind of evidence. There's the sudden arrival of religion as a massive and massively disruptive force within government and society. Um, And in terms of the kind of things I've written about, the sudden arrival of female rule in England um, in a very, very dramatic way right in the middle of the century. So there are big differences. But the other thing I should say is that it seems to me that um, these divides we have between periods, the fact that we call the Middle Ages medieval and then we go into the early modern period – and that that divide is usually dated in England to the 22nd of August 1485, when Henry VII defeated Richard III on the battlefield at Bosworth. Um, It's really important to remember that these are, in a sense, artificial distinctions. They're pointing at shifts that historians do think are significant, all sorts of political, cultural, social shifts, between what we call the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. But the people who lived then didn't know that they were moving from the Middle Ages. They didn't know they were in the Middle Ages and they didn't know they were moving to what we call the early modern period. And that's one of the reasons I have found it so interesting and it feels so important actually for some of us to write across that divide. I do think there's value sometimes in medievalists daring to stick a toe in the waters of the 16th century. And it did feel like a dare. I know I'm getting into kind of thin, a a thin atmosphere as far as my historical reach is concerned by the time I get to the very end of the 16th century. But I do think it's valuable because one brings a perspective from the Middle Ages um, and, and a sense of continuity that I think Um, it's important to remember was the experience of the people living through it. They didn't experience a sudden tectonic, tectonic shift. How have you seen things
0: change over the time that you've been working in this area in the way that academic history is communicated to ordinary people? And also, what do you think the state of that
3: currently is? That's a big and fascinating question. In some ways, I think the state of things at the moment is extremely healthy and extremely hopeful. Um, there has been over the last, oh, I don't know, how, you know, twenty years, thirty years. I don't know how many to 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 put it. But I there are there seem to me to be more and more academic historians who are interested in writing in a way that is accessible for a general historical readership, and more and more publishers that are interested in. Getting them to do that, and that seems to me to be a a wonderful thing. Um, clearly, there will always be a place, and it's very important that there's a place for very specialist academic publishing. That's the the, the sort of um, fertile soil from which everything else grows. That kind of really detailed historical research, but the kind of history that that I've chosen to write, and and I love writing and love reading actually. Is, is a broader narrative that tries to bring that detail and that focus and that analysis into a wider story that, that I hope will be interesting to people across the range, from academics all the way through to people who just feel like picking up a history book. And that seems to me a very healthy place to be. Um, not only that, but the fact that there is such an interest in history as you say, in the broadcast media. And also then if we stray into fiction and drama, um, there is clearly enormous energy and enormous interest. But in terms of television and to some extent radio, there's a huge pressure to come up with something new. And uh, in, in terms of format, which can sometimes feel difficult, particularly when it's combined with pressure to look at a subject that is already a proven audience finder, if you see what I mean. So it can sometimes feel as if one is a little bit caught between a pressure to do the Tudors again or the Nazis again or the pyramids again or something with sharks or um, a a kind of pre-approved list of subjects but find a new way to do them. And that's a peculiarly difficult um, combination of, of things I just feel very, very lucky that I've had the opportunities that I've had to tell some fascinating stories in ways that I hope um, people find interesting to watch or to listen to. And if you could use
0: a crystal ball, what would you like to see in maybe 10 years' time um, with the way that public history is presented, Uh, whether it's the types of stories that are being told, the way that they're being told, what would you hope to see?
3: I would hope that new stories would get more of a chance to be heard. Um, new stories, I mean, it's, it's the trouble is it's a bit like um, Hollywood and um, the, the famous dictum that no one knows anything, because, of course, until something new has been a success, we don't know what people will be interested in. But I do think people are interested in people and people are interested in stories. And if one can find a good story, even if it's a story one doesn't, know about before, or hasn't heard of. Um, I think I think some there have been some very interesting historical programs that have found huge audiences recently. I mean, from Who Do You Think You Are to uh, David Oshoga's, um series focusing on one house and the people who live there. I think ways of telling stories that haven't been at the forefront of the traditional history told in terms of great white men We need to know the stories of great white men. Of course we do. They've been um, decisive and shaping stories throughout much of our history. But if that means we don't see the other equally but differently shaping stories of people who don't normally get into that narrative for all sorts of reasons, then I think we're really missing out and we're missing out in a way that matters in terms of our understanding of our past and therefore our present.
4: That was Helen Castor. Elizabeth I, A Study in Insecurity, is out now, published by Penguin. And you can hear Helen speaking about Elizabeth at our History Weekend events in York and Winchester this October. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and tickets. And that's about it for today, but we'll be back tomorrow with episode 500 of the History Extra podcast featuring an interview with Professor Sir Ian Kershaw about the history of post-war Europe. And don't forget that you can catch up with previous episodes at historyextra.com.
5: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?